Happy Halloween, Chris. Happy Halloween, Connor. I knew I knew that if I said that, I would trigger, I would initiate your more kind of, um, you know, uh, spooky uh, voice. So, yeah. Look, if I could do a quality Vincent Price, I would. Uh, a quality Vincent. I feel like you, if you work on it, you could get there. You know, he's got a doable voice. He's not like. No. Oh, yes. No, that's bad. That's awful. So this is our Halloween episode. We're going to be talking about some spooky stories. One could even go as far as to say uh, spooky, scary stories. Uh, spooky and scary and and merry and sad. It's the whole it's it's the whole gamut. I was telling Dana that all three stories brought so much variety of spooks. There's weird as fuck. There's daytime horror, which I'm always a fan of when that happens. And then there's, like, legitimately spooky. Yeah, there's there's colonial fiction. And I guess you could call it colonial horror, you know, depending on if you think of it as it's a horror story. It's definitely horror, and we'll discuss why I think so. And then there's also something I would describe as it's, it's all over the place, but you could call it science fiction horror as well. It is. Yeah. So, we're going to talk about three stories. I was going to ask you if you wanted to do it in order of, you know, the ones you liked the least to the ones you liked the most. But you were saying before this that you liked them all for different reasons. So, it doesn't sound like you have like a kind of hierarchy. I love I love all of my children, Connor. <laughs> well, all of my dad lit children. <laughs> well, the, then I think we should start with the Maypole of Marymount. Because oh, okay. it's, yeah, we'll start there. For, it's the oldest of the stories, and, and we can kind of go from, like, lighter to much darker. So, um, The Maypole of Marymount by Nathaniel Hawthorne. Let me tell you just a little bit about the background of this. Did not expect that name to come up in this context. Oh. I was very excited to read this because of that name, and this didn't disappoint. Okay, well... What do you mean by that? Like, what did you, which Marymount or Nathaniel Hawthorne and Dadlet? Not to say that he's not like a grandfather of Dadlet, but also I didn't expect to be doing Nathaniel Hawthorne in a Halloween episode. Oh, okay, okay, the name Hawthorne. Yeah, I get <laughs> when it. You, when, you, when you pitched this as one of the stories, I was like, wait, what? I, I do have a collection, an anthology of, um, it's called Colonial Horror, and it includes um, uh, The Legend of Sleepy Hollow. It it actually includes a lot a lot of different stories from different you know different authors, but they're they're colon they're stories about colonial America, and there is a Hawthorne one in there, the Minister's Black Veil, which I would describe as is horror. This one, sure, I mean it might you know what you might call this this might be called inverse folk horror. Yes, it's it's. I would say daytime horror. I would say cultural horror, which mm-hmm. is how I described it to Dana. What you just said, and now looking up Nathaniel Hawthorne, it's no wonder that he is coming up in this episode because he was born in Salem, Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. So this was first published in 1836 in a publication called The Token in the Atlantic Souvenir, and what that was was uh, an annual. Um, publication of stories essays and poetry and it was very like nice like well put together uh publication 
And it was later collected, well, a year later, I should say, in Twice Told Tales, which is a, a pretty um, well-known collection of Hawthorne's fiction and in Twice Told Tales because these things had been published before, so now they're twice told. And um, Twice Told Tales... Oh, yeah, I get it. Know, clever. Um, it was published in two volumes. Nowadays, you can just buy it as a single collection. And in the collections I've seen, it usually kind of, in the index, it breaks up like, you know, volume one and volume two. It's got some really good uh, short stories in there. I believe The Minister's Black Veil is in there as well. I'm going to have to look that up. Yeah, it's worth picking up. It's worth reading. I think Nathaniel Hawthorne's a very uh, entertaining author, you know, for for being such a, an older author. He writes about colonial America. So he, you know, I think some people might mistakenly think that he was there when these things happened, but he was he was writing um, in, in the you know early eight to mid eighteen hundreds about things that happened two hundred years before he was alive. Allegedly, maybe a vampire. Maybe he was there. Could be. That could maybe be. Maybe a witch. He was in Salem. Well, I mean, maybe he felt a deep, uh, you know, connection to to all that. I remember I, I was born in New England and lived there in my early childhood. And, you know, I have very romantic memories of my early childhood in New England. It is the the culture, the, the, the architecture, the history is like, it's still there. It's very easy to go there and get kind of transported in time. Yeah, uh, this definitely transported me in time. Um, for multiple reasons, part of which is the audiobook. It's, it's weird to call a story an audiobook. The audio story had a intro and outro of like, I, I tried to see if I could find what piece of music it was or if I could just like grab a bit of the audio. I may try to and put it in for the ad break instead of an ad, but it's like this jaunty, haunting, like festival tune. That's, it's, that's it's, it's, suitable. That's it was perfect and it was like as the outro it was almost like sobering to hear it it was interesting yeah so let's let's talk a little bit about what it's about this story is set in the american colonial period it's about it features the pilgrims the puritans in new england i placed it in 1630 because marymount did exist john endicott was uh, a leader in Pilgrim, uh, Massachusetts. He was the governor of the Massachusetts Bay Colony for a time. So it features real characters. And um, in the 1630s, in 1630, it was a date I came across, there was interaction between the Puritans of the Massachusetts Bay Colony and the sort of gay merrymakers of Marymount. And this was a, a real conflict uh, between those two communities. Wow. So this is this is also historical fiction. Yeah, I think it's a, a it's a fictionalized uh, account of yeah, because no one no one was there to like. I don't know if these were account, actual events, this. right? But this there yeah, was this, yeah, yeah. and eventually Marymount was absorbed into Boston, so the community was dissolved. I think um, so. I think the conflict in this is. Uh, you know, maybe a fictionalized account, but the, the tension was really there. So let's talk a little bit about what happens in the story. And it opens with this telling of a wedding going on in this New England community called Marymount. And Marymount is described as this very gay and carnivalesque community. And in this wedding, there, there, no, this is gay in both de definitions of the term very happy jolly 
uh, carefree, primalistic almost in certain pa- s- simple ways. Pag- pa- seemingly paganistic. Pagan, for sure. Incredibly pagan. They're, the imagery yeah. is all incredibly pagan in a, in a very colorful sense. And I loved all of the descriptions. Yeah, they're they're wearing these um, animal masks and animal. Costumes. I want to see those. I would I would love since this is sort of based on some truth. I want I wonder if there's pictures of those. Well, there would be like maybe like an illustrate. Like yeah, there might be some yeah. like, and perhaps there's those. I know. Um, so <clears throat> uh, there's a wedding going on, and this community is centered around the their maypole. And a maypole is uh, it can be a tree, it can just be just a pole. But it is, uh, you've probably seen it in a film where people dance around it and there's ribbons strung from it and they hold the ribbons and move around and it's decorated. Yeah, as they walk around in a circle, it's the ribbons spiral around the pole and then they walk the other way and they unspiral and there's flowers generally. And this one's described, I believe, as a pine tree. I think that's what the pole is made of. Um, but there's an ongoing wedding and there's a celebration mm-hmm. there. Very like Bacchanal kind of getting drunk and being happy with your friends. The, the Marymount people are described as the children of Comus, which is, I believe, a Greek god, the god of celebration. And uh, after describing this scene of the wedding, the narration really drastically changes. It takes on a tone of a historian and Hawthorne begins to give you the history of this community. And we learn that it is comprised of the merrymakers of Europe. It is not the Puritans. It's not the Protestants who came over. These are the fun people who didn't feel welcome in Europe, didn't feel like they had a home there, and came and set up in uh, colonial America. Yeah, they briefly talk about like the different types of colonizers and the d- different types of people that have come to the New World. I thought that was really interesting. Uh, me too. Um, I, I, that was a really part I liked about it is breaking the uniformity of early America, of colonial America. It wasn't all the same groups of people. Well, that's the thing is a lot of history would like you to believe that it was the same people, that it was just the the pilgrims came over and that was it. It, it gives the sense of, I think, a predestination when you talk of America like that. Like this is the only way it could have been. But that, I think the mm-hmm. story points out that it could have been different so we learn that this 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 village is is there there's the neighboring puritan villagers who are always kind of uh, observing from the nearby woods and looking at mary mount you know they're they're puritans they're protestants and they are standing in judgment of the people uh, of mary mount and Hawthorne it's funny, it's funny you said standing in judgment and I got just the most vivid image of a dude in buckled shoes and buckled hat standing with his hands on his hips being like, oh, I don't like this at all that's kind of what's going on there right <laughs> and what what happens is this wedding we were, we return to the wedding scene and the bride and groom are about to take their vows and I thought this was an interesting part of the story. They they both kind of have this like psychic premonition at the same time that something bad is about to happen. Something's about to oh, change. No. Oh no, dear! The assholes are coming. Yeah, it, it was weird. It, it, it's described. I, I I tried to read like more into it, and I wasn't sure of like what was being suggested here or if it was just sort of a a way for uh, you know a, some narrative flair. You know to, that they have this kind of uh, this. Their spidey senses tingle just before the action. But what, what proceeds to happen is that the uh, at the direction of John Endicott, who, as I mentioned before, was a, a governor of the Massachusetts Bay Colony, the 
Puritans basically lay siege to Marymount and come in and they do a few few things. They cut down the maypole tree. They stop the wedding ceremony. They put people in uh, the stocks. I believe they even mentioned killing someone. Yeah. They halt the wedding. They also want to kill a bear that is trained to dance. Oh, yes. Okay. Which that was like the most like ridiculous and disturbing part. They're like, oh, yeah, yeah. So, uh, put these people up, grab them, bring that married couple. Up. Oh, and for God's sakes, kill that bear. Stop it from dancing. <laughs> right, right. And I thought this was kind of funny. They shave some people's heads where they, they don't shave them entirely. They give them the awful pilgrim pumpkin yeah. bowl cut. Um, yep. So it's kind of, but I just imagine that as being like unkempt hippies, and the you know straights are coming through, being like, "Cut your hair, get a job." This is the the uh, rural Alabama sheriff and all his deputies crashing the hippie, you know, psychedelic party uh, out in the woods. That's basically well. Shoot, boy, I tell you what, you better get your wax straight right now, or I'm gonna take you in. Shave, shave that boy's head off there, or shave, shave his head off, shave his hair off there. <laughs> Whoa, I said shave his hair, not his head. Okay, whatever. <laughs> they so they talk about there's a priest there in the community, and in in the story, mm-hmm. he he wears this sort of uh, hippieified priest's uniform the way they describe it is that he's he is in priest garb a priestly garb but he is kind of wearing flowers and ribbons and whatnot and i believe they talk about maybe killing the priest uh i think they do because that's like the cutting the head off of the snake yeah and he's he's looked at as the especially horrible person in the community because he's he's the one that's turning everyone astray and corrupt he's an abomination and there's the bride and groom have this they in, they interact with John Endicott and they're like, please, you know, take me, don't don't hurt my partner, and they both say the same thing, and um, Endicott ends up sparing them, and he even says something like, well, you know, the the young man here has a lot of potential, maybe he could be like a good a good Puritan like us, um, a good worker, yeah, not in a, not in a necessarily like a merciful way, but basically, I kind of read into it a certain degree of misogyny, and that it's like. Oh, young young white man. I mean, there they would have all been young white men, but it's like you I know. got the impression. Yeah, I got the impression that it was a, a very much uh, you two are young and full of potential, and we're just led astray. Let us correct your path, and the man can be a, a generous and helpful part of the community if he's taught correctly, and the woman. Yes. <laughs> well, she could be a, a good child provider. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's um it's not for their benefit. And <clears throat> no. The uh Hawthorne at one point in the story identifies this as like a a splitting point in history. He's like he, and again getting back to what we we're talking about one of the themes here is is I thought which I liked is that, you know, history and American history is not this inevitable thing. It's there were options, there was diversity in the people that came to this country. And it could have been different. It very well could have been different. There, there was the ingredients for something different at the beginning. Joking around about the Alabama sheriff uh, and the hippies, 
it's interesting to see like again this scenario gets played out over and over again yeah it keeps happening it's happening today with different types of trans um, people you know trans people different types of lgbtq uh, individuals as people start to explore themselves and explore expression and different types of sexualities and different types of existence and what you can be and what can make you feel like yourself there's always going to be pushback because a bunch of people think that what is yourself is what the books and schools and church tell you is yourself that was like interesting to me in this story is it tells you about all of the beauty and splendor and fun and then has the church roll up on a horse wearing you know wearing armor going around like a a, a group of killers just sacking the place and uh it is like a roaming band of vikings uh pillaging and plundering of a, a village like you know someone's yeah village but but in this scenario those uh raving barbarians are supposed to be the orderly ones the ones that are in the right right and and you see the the gaiety i used the i used the you know i used the term gay earlier just because it's like the gaiety of these people it's it, it's so celebratory and happy and fun mm-hmm. and it just totally gets squashed i thought this was a good halloween read for for the reason that it's set in colonial new england and to me new england just hasn't there's a, an autumnal quality to like colonial new england stories that and there, you got people wearing masks and uh you've you've got like like I said, like a non-traditional horror in that it's like a daytime horror. And I always like when that can be pulled off. So what do you um, by daytime horror, do you mean like horror set in the daytime, or does it mean more than that? Yeah. Yeah, but I th- I, I don't think it's always done well. I think especially in film, doing that is difficult. What immediately comes to mind, especially in this scenario, is Midsommar. Like, I got a lot of Midsummer vibes from this, like flowers and festivals. And I think there's even a may- maybe a maypole in Midsummer, but Wicker Man as well for me. Yeah, 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 exactly. Th- those kinds of like pagan festivals can be done well in the daytime if it's done well. And you don't get that a lot in horror. Most horror is done at night or in like inside places in the dark. The threat is out of sight until it jumps out to kill you. And that can be scary. They're scared of the dark, fear of the unknown. Daytime horror is in the light. Everything's illuminated, but you're in the middle of a field and you can see something coming across the field towards you. You can't really run from it. It keeps closing the distance. And all you can do is watch as it gets closer and closer. Always in sight. Always scary. And this is sort of like that, except it's cultural. The threat is cultural erasure. It's Christian ideology coming to kill off and erase your ways and your doings. And you have to just kind of watch it approach on horseback. And that's uh, its own type of horror. So this was like an interesting take on something that we could read for this episode. And I really liked that. Yeah. And that's why I called it inverse folk horror because, you know, Midsummer is folk horror. It's about the freaky cultists, uh, the freaky pagan cultists. But this is about the freaky pagan cultists are great. 
And it's the conservative people who come in and totally plow through them and um, shave their heads into these really awful uh, haircuts. So, (laughs) um, yeah. And uh, you you get that. You get all of the the creepy cultural twisting and correcting and um, them like taking this married, soon to be married couple, not anymore, off to the village and then the the story concludes, and you get some jaunty, happy music, and you're like, "Oh, yeah. order has been restored." <laughs> um, so let's talk about it really quickly as Dadlit, since this is the Dadlit podcast. Um, what? Okay, uh, there's one big Dadlit checkbox. Or yeah, yeah, yeah. Thing. I loved when they rolled up on the coast on a nuclear submarine and just completely obliterated yeah. that maypole with a, a, a Triton missile. Well, when John Endicott <laughs> came in with a Sten gun and took out the uh, the pagans, I thought that was cool, you know? Yeah, they never heard it coming. And he called them commie pinkos, so. <laughs> no, I, the one thing is is that, so it is, it is, um, it is fiction, it's a tale, but it's it's historical fiction um, based on real events, but it does – I would check the box as non-fictional framing device. Um, yeah, absolutely. Let's, ju- so let's just run through those real quick. Okay. Uh, Hypercompetent hyper male protagonist, no. Uh, character with signature item, uh, I don't know, maybe the Maypole. Um, uh, henchman, absolutely. They weren't really like mentioned, but you know there, there are secondary like Puritan characters who have yeah, a couple yeah, yeah, lines. Yeah. Uh, elite fighting force, not really. Technician class character, sure. Priest, um, pencil necked bureaucrats, maybe. I don't know what Endicott's neck look like. Mm. Um, president as character. Well, I mean, the governor of the Massachusetts Bay yeah, Colony yeah, yeah, would yeah, kind of yeah. carry the the you know the power of someone of that stature. So yeah. sure cameos of famous historical figures yeah there you go yes we haven't had that one in a while um texans not yet but they might move there in the future spirit um yeah uh competency competency shift no misogyny racism and other outdated modes of thinking yes that's the story um excessive smoking no excessive drinking yes actually there might be excessive smoking they didn't really talk about it but there's a party um Cold War, Red Menace, Context, no. Gratuitous sex scenes, Implied, um, Salvage Operation, no. You don't remember um, the subplot where they, they pick the uh, the Mayflower up off of the Atlantic yeah, exactly. using inflatable pumpkins? Yeah. Um, fails the Bechdel test, yes. Um, villain monologue? Yeah, I, I think, think so. so. I think so. Yeah. Villain anti-monologue, no. Breezy scientific technical exposition. Kind of? Histori- I don't say technical. Historical. Yeah, historical, yeah. Um, non-fictional framing device, yes. Nuclear warheads, no. Multiple moles, no. Experimental technology, no. Gun porn, no. Vehicle porn, no. Helicopters, no. Submarines, no. Both, no. Planes, ships, no. Uh, recapped, recapped presented within plot, not really. Um, and then Clancy S. Tech Exposition, no. Maps, illustrations, or diagrams, no. Um, no location or date time stamps. Author photo does not include Hawaiian shirt, aviator sunglasses. That would Maybe be fall cap. Antique car or dog, but I would love to see all of those on Nathaniel Hawthorne. We, okay. In, inst- okay. Instagram. <laughs> can, can, if someone, someone listening to the pod, please edit a Nathaniel Hawthorne yeah. picture to include all Instagram of these. Instagram graphic forthcoming, please. 
Yeah, please. Oh my god. Um, is it part of a series? No. Um, does text include teaser for the next? No. Um, is there a large print version available at your library? No. No. Okay. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> Anything else we want to say about this story? Uh, what would you rate it in terms of dad lit? Um, I would give it. I would give it um maybe fifty f- fifty five uh, pumpkin bowl haircuts and uh, and ch- ch- no just that. I give it uh, sixty nine uh, white buckled boots and buckled hat. Uh, also nice. Okay, cool. I I mean I like the story. I think this should be. What would you rate it? What would you rate it as a story? As a as like a Halloween story? What would you as rate a it? Halloween story? I might give it like a six uh, sixty. Do it a one one out of five. One out of five, like a three. I mean, as a story, I would give it a five. I think this would be a great thing. Anyone who wanted a good short story to read, especially like a short, short story, and they wanted something a little more like heady, not like something genre-y, I would absolutely recommend this. And I think this would be a great story to teach in school as well. I think it would be – they'll never do that, Connor. (laughs) Um, I I think it would be – a good story to teach in school as well but in terms of uh entertainment i only gave it three out of five stars okay let's move on to the next one all right let's do a drift you want to do that one next okay Uh, i think so okay the next one we're going to talk about the full title is i'll tell you a drift just off the islets of langer hands latitude 38 degrees, 54 minutes north, longitude 77 degrees, 0 minutes, 13 seconds west by Harlan Ellison. I hope you all got that. There is going to be a quiz later. So uh, adrift just off the islets of Langer Hands is how I've always described it. We can just call it adrift because it is a wordy title. Hey, Connor, real quick, real quick. Cover the title up with your hand. Not give me the latitude longitude coordinates again. Uh, I, there, there's, it's not going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, let me let me just rattle off a few historical facts about this. It was originally published in the magazine of fantasy and science fiction in October 1974. Uh, it was republished in the collection Deathbird Stories, a Harlan Ellison short that story collection. That is such a good collection. Yeah. Oh, that's a cool cover. Yeah. And it was- Connor's, Connor's holding up his copy of it. Uh, Deathbird is one of my favorite Harlan Ellison stories, uh, by I'm, the way. Oh, yeah, yeah. It, this story won the 1975 Hugo Award, which is a science fiction uh, award uh, for I best- I cannot believe he won an award with this ridiculous ass story. Best novelette was what he won wow. for. Okay, so what, a, what an asshole! I love him. We so both much. love Harlan Ellison. I first dis- he's such a he's, he's such a raving lunatic. I love yeah, him. I first discovered this story in a collection called it was like a werewolf short story collection. It was all stories like a, yeah, yeah, you sent me that. I think I I like it really stood out to me. I remember starting to read it and being just blown away by by I mean. It, I'm going to call it novel, but even though it, it like brings back existing, you know, brings existing characters into the story, but just a really interesting approach to, to the story of spoilers. the spoilers. Yeah. And I'll, which by the way, going into this, I had no idea. Here's like, until I did. 
Yeah, until it clicks. When they start na- when they start naming characters, I'm like, wait a wait a minute, this guy's named Talbot, huh? Okay, and then you get a businessman, and, and it's Demeter. Hmm, that sounds familiar. Mm-hmm. And then Mr. Talbot's like, I'm gonna go talk to my friend Victor, and I'm like, oh, okay, <laughs> I see what's going on here. <laughs> so the <clears throat> The sort of uh, elevator pitch or, you know, really uh, short description of this story is that Larry Talbot, the Wolfman, wants... Yes, that Wolfman. Yeah. That one from the movie. He wants to be cured of his immortality. In order to do that, he needs to locate his soul. And he hires a company to do that. They do. Dracula. They do locate his soul, and he goes on something like a fantastic voyage inside of his own body to locate With his... With the help of Victor Frankenstein. Right. <clears throat> so that's... Uh, and you kind of have to decipher that story as it emerges. Like, once you get it, you're kind of like, okay, I get what this is, what's going on here. Once you get it, you're on the ride. You're enjoying... You're, you are buckled in for this adventure because it is an adventure... Before you know what's going on, you're intrigued. Once you know what's going on, you're like, is this is this really what I'm reading right now? Yeah. It, so it's hard. And it gets wilder and wilder because Harlan Ellison is a wild man. I think you may have picked up on more intertextuality and character references than I did because, well, let's talk about it and you can you can point them out. So the the, the plot real quick. Um, a man walks into a bathroom that is the address he was given. When he opens the stall, it's the entry into a waiting room in a swanky business room, like a like an office. And the receptionist greets him, and he's brought into the main office. And there's a man there, Mr. Demeter, which the Demeter is the name of the ship that brought Dracula over to uh, England. London. Yeah. 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 So it, it's heavily implied that that's supposed to be Dracula. Anyway. Did you, so they, I didn't, I did not necessarily pick up on that. I, let me add to a few things. So he, he visits this office, um, which he, he finds an ad for it, like embedded in a newspaper. And he kind of picks up on that. It's a very cryptic ad and that the people who ran this ad might be like able to help him locate his soul. And, yeah, it's, and it it gets even more mystic spooky when it's the it's in a bathroom stall. It gets even more mystic spooky when he's like, "Hey, this is what I want you to do for me." And the guy's like, "Yeah, we can do that. Have you made the, the necessary arrangements?" And he's like, "Yeah, I've got all of the I've saved up money in multiple different accounts and holdings and things, and I have all this stuff and blah blah blah. And I'll just I can go home and get my the accounts and stuff in order." And he's like, well, we have a room prepared for you to do that in because you see – he's like, oh, I get it. If I come back tomorrow, it's just a normal bathroom, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yes. And when so when one cool thing is when he walks into the office, he sees this wall-sized image of what looks like – like um, like Jurassic Earth. It's like a – it's like an – a pre – it's like an ancient – eons ancient version of Earth with like volcanoes and – giant plants and he at one point i think he identifies that it's a photograph 
later on he in 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 reflecting on information associates which is i is kind of, i kind of interpreted it as like a, almost like a private investigation firm that they were information brokers right and that they he even he says to victor frankenstein later that they may have even been time travelers and that's kind of how they get information or you know that there's there's something really weird about them and i thought this whole part of the story had a very spy fiction vibe to it this part absolutely does like i almost like heard the music from the incredibles when he was meeting with this guy and like the description of like the picture like gave me like the tropical island vibe from the incredibles for some reason and um and, and, and larry talbot is also described as very he's very he has a lot of money uh he's very powerful mm-hmm. and there's an illusion at the beginning uh to some foreign prime minister who was found dead and he kind of wonders if maybe he did that so i kind of picked but up he on doesn't know because because he doesn't have memories of his, his wolfman experience and he tries to keep himself chained up when he transforms into a werewolf so i kind of thought yeah, that me too yeah well we all try i i mean i'm i'm getting better not a better wolf maybe he does like contract killing or something like that i I, there's a lot of like hit and and again we will probably talk about this in our spy fiction episode but there's just subtle things little facts that are dropped that make your imagination go to places like who who is he what does he do you know what does he make money off of and in in information information bookmark that Bookmark this thought for later. I'll I'll bring it up. Anyways, keep going. It, information brokers. Information associates, their payment is really strange. They want two train cars of this particular kind of sand or something like that, or maybe it was beans. Like they want really strange stuff. Which Hey, you know who needs a particular kind of sand is a vampire. That's true. I, I kind of I thought about the time travel element of that and how if you were a time traveler and you wanted to affect things in the past present or future you might need really strange resources to do that so maybe you're going to deliver like a train car of beans to some soldiers somewhere so you can fuel some revolution i don't know I, it, again there's so there's such small things that are peppered throughout the story that really make made my imagination go crazy but anyways moving forward he gets the information in its coordinates they are latitude and longitude coordinates and next which is relevance in the title exactly and next he has to find a way to get to these coordinates inside of his body they are coordinates inside of his body which they not they don't tell you you kind of learn this later yeah and like it kind of just it kind of just when he gets the coordinates it kind of just abruptly you know star wipe jump cut whatever you whatever transitional thing you want to the next scene where he's going to see victor yeah do you want to describe what happens from here yeah just briefly um he goes to victor frankenstein and asks him for help victor has uh, like a female associate or a female person there that is um what did you get off of that this is there are parts of the story i really don't understand and this was one of them and it, it only it only kind of comes into play at the end of the story but he has yeah, he has an assistant it, who's this uh kind of older lady who seems very depressed i'll just kind of leave it at that but he also seemed to be fam- like it like it looked like someone he who he might know but was impossible for it to be them later on he he thinks it's his mother he he actually thinks yeah. it's literally his mom 
But so Victor Frankenstein, which knowing knowing Victor Frankenstein, it very well could be. He tells him it is not. And then, well, the way Frankenstein works is the body is reanimated, but it's not the same person. So if Victor Frankenstein reanimated the corpse of the mother, it would still be a new person. It would just look like the mother. I, okay, okay. So if you looked at someone and said, hey, that looks just like, and then Victor Frankenstein goes, it's not. He's just maybe implying that on the inside, it's not. I th- I didn't think it was his like mom. if someone re- like if someone recognized the corpse he used for the original Frankenstein's monster and like hey isn't that Joe he's like it's not because it's not it's now Adam Frankenstein like it's now I th- the, I th- the monster I took I took it to mean that he ident that perhaps she did resemble his mom but he identified a sorrow in her that he associated with his mother. And that this was that some some sort of like psychological hang up. I like he had. that it's left vague. Yeah, I like that it's left vague though, especially knowing these characters like I do. Like it, I thought it might just be a new Frankenstein's monster, like the Bride of Frankenstein type thing. And like it, but the end it would make it really sweet if it was. Anyways, he gets Victor. He commissions Victor to make a device for him. That will help him get inside of his own body. They discuss a few ways that they could do it, but he essentially tasks Victor, figure out a way to make this happen. I need to go inside my own body. Hey, what time period do you think this is set in? Um, I'm just going to say, I would just say the 1970s. The 1970s? I don't know. Yeah. Well, they, there's mention There's mention of a part. Okay. It, it does have a Cold War context. And there's mention mm-hmm. of a particle accelerator in Geneva. Yeah. So yeah. you could probably date it. So it's wild to assume that Victor Frankenstein lived that long. I think this is Victor Frankenstein's son, though. Okay. That would make more sense. Because he talks about be his more father okay. being basically being like paralyzed but still alive. He, I think that, that that is mentioned. So I believe this might be Victor Jr. Regardless, when they started talking about particle accelerators, I was like, how the fuck old is Victor Frankenstein? <laughs> or he could have just brought himself back to life or something. We don't know. At any rate, he builds the most ridiculous science fiction Star Trek techno babble device I've ever heard of in anything I've read. And it's wild that harlan ellison dreamed this thing up it's like a willy wonka machine yes Uh, yeah kind of huh for sure yeah yeah it like mike tvs him basically um it makes a you go to sleep you are put under it makes a hologram copy of you that you are piloting so there's a tiny little microscopic hologram of you that you get to see from like your perceptions from but you're still in your body but not in your body so it's basically like duplicated you but you're piloting around a a duplicate the the way i understood it is that it made the process of it is that you're you're not put under when it makes the it it made a hologram uh, it made a very small hologram of him and then somehow the second part of the process was it it imbued the hologram with life and created basically a, a homunculus and what yeah, happens but, but it's you it like is you, you you are but what but that only that only happened when 
Larry Talbot looks at it under a microscope. And this is a really interesting part of the actual text is because he looks down into the microscope and sees it. And the next paragraph is him looking up at himself. So oh, that's right. It's that's a weird. Right. It's like it almost like as soon as you look at it, it hey, you who go do we into have it. To pay who do we have to pay to get this made into a motion picture? It would be. I mean, wild. You know. Th- <laughs> all right. Let me. I have something to say about that at the end. But okay. So so what happens next is when I said Fantastic Voyage, I mean the book and the movie where. He, 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 someone goes on an adventure inside of a human body and the human yeah, body, body wars. the human body systems are the landscape they have to traverse and that's what but he it's does it's not even it's it's like an otherworldly landscape he goes into his body and into it's his, not like through his belly dis- button he he goes like in through yeah, his own belly and it's yeah. and it's not the description of like veins and organs it's the description of like being on an ocean and there being like another continent to go to see like yeah it's, it's 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 an epic it's journey. It's a fantasy realm. Yeah, it's a fantasy realm inside of your body. It's more like a, the spiritual plane rather than the physical organs. I thought it was kind of in. I, I don't know if it's he writes it this way, but the image I, I thought it, it, in my head it was very infernal, and very red and like massive and kind of frightening. Yeah, I just thought of that because I thought about moving through blood and guts. It's and like a love a Lovecraftian landscape, and uh, so he. He goes on this journey to this just off the islets of Langerhands, and the islets of Langerhands are actually th- th- that refers to these cell clusters located on the pancreas that are responsible for producing certain ho- hormones. So he ends up he ends up finding this, and as you said, it's like him just finding an island, and he goes onto the beach of the island with this canoe he's been you know floating around on, and he starts digging, and he digs up his soul. And opens this box, you know, finds a box and opens it and he looks at his soul. And it's a little howdy doody button that he had when he was a kid. At that point in the story, he returns to his larger corporeal body. And it's not explained very, uh, like, detailed, but he has somehow, in locating his own soul, cured himself of his immortality because and it should be said at the beginning that the the wolfman is haunt is is haunted by his immortality he wants to die he wants to stop hurting people and he doesn't want to live forever so he's accomplished what he set out to accomplish uh in in locating his soul he has cured himself there's a connection to mythology here i don't know if you're aware of i don't think um, so no in the Osiris myth, there's like parts of the body that are um, put in boxes and scattered around, and like um, finding yourself in a box in like a river is basically a, like a part of the Osiris myth. Oh, that's interesting. Well, yeah, in, in, I don't know if it was intentional, but the Deathbird stories are all about God figures. So, yeah, so that would make sense. It would be again wild that. He was like, I'm going to tell the Osiris myth, but from the Wolfman's <laughs> Harlan Ellison's a genius in my book. I mean, he is just a brilliant, brilliant writer. Brilliant man. Brilliant man. R.I.P. <clears throat> and I almost like feel like bad talking about his stories because if I feel like if he was alive and he ever heard that, he'd be like, what the fuck are you talking about? That's not what I was doing. Well, you didn't even read. You know, he he's very uh, – he's miserly, miserly, grumpy guy. Yeah, he's a, a very cranky man. I love him. But he, so, he hates everything. <laughs> but so he's passed away, though. Um, he's he's gone. 
Um, so he, uh, so anyways, he just, he cures himself. He's awake. He sees the lab assistant from earlier and kind of falls in love with her, I guess. Like, what did you, I, I, I had a difficulty in understanding what was going on. He really like bonds with her. And I think like I was it, saying earlier, he identifies her sorrow and tries to help her. Yeah. That's more, I think he finds a kindred spirit and no longer wants to destroy his soul and die instead he wants to exist within that body landscape with the kindred spirit and it like time apparently passes differently while inside the body and there's like all of this places that can he can explore which i always i felt like that means like exploring yourself which is very like interesting symbolism and very like uh philosophical but yeah, he's like, hey, let me instead of destroying my soul, let me take her, with the, put her under the same process, make a little hologram copy, and we're both just gonna go live inside my body. What do you think? <laughs> what do you think, Doc? Yeah, what do you think? What do you think? And uh, that's uh, that's the story. It's it's so well, strange. And they, I got the under impression that they put the bodies under like suspended animation. Then I think I think he uh, does he does say something about going into cryogenics. He's like, put, yeah, put my body yeah. in cryo. So here's a uh, – in Deathbird stories, there's a foreword to each of the stories, and here's the foreword for this one. Reality has become fantasy. Fantasy has become reality. 35-millimeter constructs have more substance than your senior congressman. But Martha Nelson is real, no matter what you think, and the search for your soul in a soulless world requires special maps. Um, and I believe Martha Nelson is the character, the sad lady at the end of it, if I'm if I'm not yeah. mistaken. I think so. I would be, like I said, I'd be lying if I told you I understood every part of this story uh, or what was intended. But I, it's, it's one of my favorite Harlan Ellison stories. Uh, yeah, I wasn't aware of it. And I don't know how because, like, I've listened to multiple audiobook collections of his stories that he reads himself which is really wild by the way if you get the experience to listen to him read his own work it's the only like real way to experience it this one wasn't in those collections i had to get it through the deathbird story collection and i was like how did i miss this story like this is like ridiculous did, did he narrate narrate this one as well no, that's what I'm saying. Like, the, it wasn't available in the versions oh. that he narrates. Oh, do you know? Yeah. Was it was it like a generic narrator? Or was it? Some, it do you know who it was? Was it someone familiar? Or was it just? No, just a generic narrator. Okay, but it was it was still really good. Yeah, I've heard him uh, read. Uh, I have no mouth and I must scream. And I, you know, that's like what. I maybe... think you can find that. I think you can find that on YouTube if you want. People yeah. at home, go go look up Harlan Ellison reading anything that he's written. It's great. Yeah, uh, I would definitely, I would definitely recommend the story Grail. Grail is one of my favorites. I think you. Um, I would definitely that. recommend Deathbird. I would definitely recommend Jeffy is five. Uh, what um, I what I like about him as a as a reader, because there's a documentary out about him as well. That's kind of interesting. But what I like about listening to him read the the few things I have is that you know as a writer as well, I think about voice and how you know as you have your voice, it's a literal voice. You know, it's it's a tone, it's a way of speaking, and yeah, the narrative voice. People talk about 
you know, certain authors having a certain narrative voice. And when you hear a, when you hear a writer read their own work, I feel like you're you're not just hearing them tell the story; you're hearing how they wrote the story, like in their head, and like the tone. You get a better sense of like tonally what they were intending to do, and it's just it's kind of an insight into like what happens in their head when they're writing. At least I, I some think of so. it. Some of them are not good at reading, though. Like no. I, and that's the thing is there are two authors that I can think of that my preferred vo- my, my preferred method of uh, uh, consuming their works is hearing them read it. And it's because they both have phenomenal voices and both have phenomenal narrative voices. And that's Harlan Ellison and Neil Gaiman. Oh uh, yeah, I've never listened to a Neil Gaiman audiobook, but I can go I can do tell, it. I, well, go do it. I've heard him it's... recite some of his poetry he's written, and I'm like, yeah. yeah, he 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 can speak, he can perform the literature and the poetry. Um, yeah, he he has one of the most beautiful voices, and it's like magical. Like hearing him read, st- I would listen to him read encyclopedias. Like he's got um he's got an album out he he did a musical album with a quartet um where it's basically just him reading poetry while they play music over it it's really beautiful um i don't remember what it's called i'm sure if you looked up neil gaiman on spotify though it'll come up highly recommend it yeah so this story as dad lit oh okay let's hold on wheel out the the list again okay uh hyper competent male protagonist i think so i i I, not in a not in this offensive way that other books present them but he is hyper i'll argue against it i'll argue against it he can't do everything himself he needs to have friends and he's not that good at everything okay i mean uh, we can meet maybe meet in the middle Uh, he's very resourceful though okay Character with signature item. Not really. I mean, he, he uh, Victor Frankenstein has a signature particle accelerator. Sure. Uh-huh. Yeah. You remember the particle accelerator from the, the book Frankenstein. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, henchman. Um, not... The receptionist, maybe. Um, not, not, not really. Not really. Yeah. Elite fighting force. No. Technician class characters, yes, yeah. Victor Frankenstein. And his all his assistants. Like, yeah, you could argue that he is the technician class character. There, there are like um, the, there are like the people that run the machines and their reference. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh pencil neck bureaucrats, not really. President is character, not unless you count Count Dracula as the president. Cameos of famous historical figures, yes, Count Dracula. Um Texans, yes, Count Dracula. Competency shift, not really. Uh, misogyny, racism, and other outdated modes of thinking. I, I didn't really get any of that. Not really. Excessive smoking or drinking. Not really. Um, Cold War context. Yes. Yeah. And it's dependent on um, it because what's the, the way? Actually, speaking of the technician class characters, it's described how the West has its particle accelerator and the East has its particle accelerator, and Victor Frankenstein was hired to build it. And he has this crew of people that work with him, but their loyalty is to Victor Frankenstein. They are not communists themselves, and neither is he. They're just yeah, that, scientists, almost like a almost like an Oppenheimer vibe. They're yeah, yeah, okay. So, but Cold yeah. War context, yes. 
Yeah. Uh, gratuitous sex scenes, no. no. Salvage operation, yes. Yeah, yeah, I guess so. <laughs> Salvaging his soul, yeah. Um, sure. Fails the Bechdale test, yes. Let's see. Villain monologue. I wouldn't say there's really a villain. No. The, the, the uh, yeah. Villain anti-monologue. No. No, not really. Um, breezy scientific technical exposition. Yes. Yeah. Uh, non-fictional framing device. No. Nuclear warheads. No. Multiple moles. No. Experimental technology. Yes. Yes. Gun porn. No. Vehicle porn. Not that I remember. No helicopters, submarines, planes, or ships. Well, ship. There, there sort is, of. There, he meets Victor on a ship. That is yeah. described as um, the ship on the river Styx. That's yeah. that's so. I would uh, I would say yeah. Well, we we don't include ships, but yeah, yeah. we'll we'll maybe do that. Um, recap presented within plot. Uh, no, not really. Clancy has technical exposition, sort of. Uh, maps, illustrations, or diagrams. No. Uh, chapters have location and or date. Well, the story's name has a location in it. I, I would check that box, yes. The title has yep. latitude, um, longitude. Author photo includes one or more of the following. No, I would not no. picture him in a Hawaiian shirt. I would picture him in aviator sunglasses. I can picture him in a navy ball cap. It probably wouldn't be his own. Um, I can picture him with an antique car, but probably like a small one, like a Hot Wheels car. And I can picture him with a dog. I could picture um, him in a with a floral print shirt. Like there's interviews of him from like the 70s, and he dresses kind of fl- well, yeah, flamboyant, a little bit like Hunter S. Tom Hunter S. Thompsony, yeah. yeah. But but um, no, we don't have any of those pictures to to validate. This. No, but I can but I can picture it. Sure. Um, is there a large print version at your library? Probably not. Not that kind of is book. It part of a, is it part of a series? Arguable. It's part of a collection of stories that are thematically. Frankenstein is from another story. Okay. Uh, Shared... Dracula's from another story. Intertextuality. It's not a series, though. Yeah. Do we want to? Do we want to add intertextuality as a dadlet hallmark? Maybe. Well, let's talk about it more in a future episode because I'd like to talk about more examples of it outside of this. Okay. Um, does the text include teaser for the author's next book? No. Okay. So not th- there was more checklist items on this one than the last one, but not as many as as you'd want for a dad lit. But as we say, we we use that as a as a guide. It doesn't it doesn't necessarily yeah. it doesn't translate directly into a score because there have been books we've read that don't rate that don't check many boxes, but are super strong dad lit. So I, I wouldn't. So what would, yeah. what would what would you rank this for in terms of dadlet? How many how many sneakers? Um, thirty eight point five four howdy duty buttons, and seventy seven point zero point one three um train cars of uh South Saharan dirt, which is not much, okay. not much. Uh, I'll, I'll give it forty one white sneakers. Yeah, it's not. It's the Wolfman not. came out in 1941. <laughs> it has like spy story elements, but it's it just it's not very dad litty. No spy spy story elements. It's got technical exposition, and it's like connected to like movies and stuff, which is kind of interesting. Yeah. As a as a whole, I would give this four out of five stars. I was very entertained. It blew me away with the, with the audacity of what the story is about. Yeah. And it's written well because Harlan Ellison doesn't disappoint. 
Yeah, I agree. I would I would give it the same ranking. Uh, one of the most interesting werewolf stories I've I've read. And if you're not familiar with the the Wolfman movie, it's a very good movie. Uh, there's a se- sequel to it that's also very good called um i think it's frankenstein meets the wolfman um Mm -hmm. and it's an excellent excellent movie uh the subject matter is pretty sad i mean it's about larry talbot the wolfman trying to kill himself because he doesn't want to be immortal and he doesn't want to live as this monster that hurts people and what he does is he meets up with victor frankenstein's daughter it might be his granddaughter maybe in that movie and tries to use the uh, Frankenstein monster device rather than to inject life into himself to subtract the life from himself. Uh, but it's a really good movie. Uh, the story is good. It's just, it's just an interesting, and, and Look, it ju- I'm, just, I'm just saying lightning will kill you. <laughs> yeah. So, um, okay, let's go on to the last. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Before we move on, I have one thing to say, uh, in terms of what I've been reading recently, Mm-hmm. Frankenstein. You've been reading Frankenstein? Yes. Uh, this month, I got the book club I'm a part of to read Frankenstein. So I've been going through it. I'm like most of the way through it. Very different from the movie. I really enjoy the book so far. I'm interested to see how it ends. It ends in an interesting place. It begins in an interesting place, too. It begins in an interesting place, yeah. Um, um, I, I bought... I recently took a long... Uh, trip to uh, Italy and I I was like wondering oh, I got to bring some books with me to read I ended up not reading that much while I was there um, but I bought this three in one book that contains Frankenstein Dracula and uh, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde and I was gonna read it this month but I probably won't get around to it but I'm, I'm reading something else I'll, I'll, t- I'll talk about more of that at the end what, what I'm reading Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde is a remarkably good story mm-hmm. I love Robert Louis Stevenson and that story like caught me off guard with how good it was so uh, we'll have to talk more about Frankenstein when you yeah, finish it uh, but, but one more thing about Frankenstein though and I could almost see this story taking place within this other universe so I have been listening to a podcast called Story Lords it's a, like a writing podcast where three guys write stories and then read them to each other to try to make each other laugh. One guy writes science fiction, one guy writes fantasy, and one guy writes horror. And some of the some of the horror stories the guy writes involve Adam Frankenstein PI. And it's the 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 framing device is Frankenstein was unfrozen and um lives into the 30s and becomes a private investigator. And knows all this weird anachronistic knowledge because these are all the, like, case notes that are being read. So it's something that he wrote later in life. And so he makes all sorts of weird anachronistic references to things. But it's Frankenstein encountering other movie monsters within the context of a noir setting. And so it's like... (laughs) The, like, the first episode with it is Frankenstein helping a mobster with his casino, and the casino has a mummy in the basement that's been, like, manipulating things to make a fortune off of the casino. It's, like, embezzling funds, basically. The stories are wild, and Frankenstein is such a great character in um, this creator's, like, universe. Um, and it's really... It shows what you can do with the character and, like fucking around with like time frame and genre if anyone's interested in this check out story lords podcast 
Um, and I highly recommend you do that, Connor, because you would love these Frankenstein stories. I'll check it out. I, I have a friend, uh, Joey uh, Solis, and he is an illustrator and writer, and he makes comic books, and he wrote one and illustrated it, and it's called Fastenstein. And it's about a um, – and he said – I'm not super familiar with, like, the history of comics, but he's like – this is like a Silver Age comic style. And it's about okay. – it is about – it is this Frankenstein who can run super fast. And the, the, I'm looking at the cover of it now, and it's this Frankenstein in a kind of a superhero type, like – leotard in a sprinter's stance it's it's a pretty good it's i I have the comic book send that send that to me yeah send that to me i will for sure um Um, silver age silver age is what refers to when comics got popular golden age is like the early age of comics like tales to astonish and like the origin comics of all the heroes you can think of and then when they got their first like redesign and people realized that things could be like an, an ongoing story or have like a shared universe is when like the silver age took off and that's when, like, a lot of the heroes in their styles that you recognize them in were born. And then after that, there's, like, the Bronze Age, which is, like, the 90s and then the Modern Age. Well, But anyways, comic history aside, yeah. uh, we do have a third story to discuss. Okay, and this is the most direct, you know, horror story we've read. And it's called yes. The Vaults of Yah Vombus by clark ashton smith have you had you read any clark ashton smith no um will you read will 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 i probably so this story connor connor i went on like a year of reading nothing but horror to try to find horror that creeped me out and this one did it oh good good it did it for two reasons. One of them is the writing, and one of them is uh, the, an atmospheric occurrence, a synchronicity, if you will. Huh. Uh, because a, as I was uh, reading this, a pillow fell on my couch right next to me and scared the shit out of me. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's creepy, <laughs> it, for sure. It was published in May 1932 in Weird Tales. Clark Ashton Smith was a contemporary of H.P. Lovecraft's. They actually exchanged a lot of letters. Um, some of them you can find. I think you can find them online, and I think some of them are collected in books. Uh, they really liked each other. H.P. Lovecraft loved Clark Ashton Smith's writing. He was critical of some of the the thing, uh, like some of his writing uh, in terms of like editing it, and this story in particular. But he he thought he did cosmic horror. H.P. Lovecraft thought Clark Ashton Smith was like a master. Uh, at cosmic horror and did it I, well. I so far from what i've little i've read of cosmic horror i would agree and in smith he, he did a couple of there's a couple of descriptions in this that i thought were brilliant and yeah. were carried off really well i have a few things highlighted in here as well that i'm gonna read off but of, of, of like his his prose smith was also a poet an illustrator and a sculptor and if you go online you can find images of his sculptures they're these little kind of soapstone uh, totemic style monsters and including some of cthulhu he was a he was a cool guy very artistic uh, you know extremely romantic when you read his poetry a lot of his stories are more in the realm of dark fantasy and he has a lot of like wizard characters and things like that 
Some of them are more like cosmic horror. Uh, some of them are a blend of all those things. He's I've got a few of his collections here. Some of them go for quite a bit of money. Um, but uh, there's there's an affordable uh, Penguin Classics edition that, uh, called the Dark. I think it's called the Dark Eidolon in other tales. That's a a collection of some of his more. I don't know. Well, I don't know if there's. I don't think they're more popular, but they're a collection of his works. I've got a few different uh, collections of his. Um, the original. So I I've read this story a few times. This time I read a version. There's this guy that has this website called I think it's called like eldritchdark.com, and uh, I couldn't find the guy's name, but he seems to be a scholar of of, of Smiths, and <clears throat> he he wrote a little you know a little intro to this story. Um, how, uh, Smith had like an expanded edition of it and he was asked to edit it down and cut out about like 2000 plus words for the, for, for uh, weird tales. Did you read the t- version that was cut down or the full version? The full version. Um, I've, Same. I've also, so, okay. And in what, the way it describes it is that the, 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 the material that was cut out was more like descriptive atmospheric stuff. It wasn't so much plot stuff. It was, it was, you know, world building and, and, and atmosphere and things like that. So the story, it's science fiction horror as well. Um, the, the, right off the, right off the bat. Cause it's like, Hey, yo, Mars. Yeah. Astronauts. Yeah. Yeah. So you, it opens with, um, with, it, it has sort of a non-fictional framing device. It, it opens with this brief section where someone's saying, Hey, you know, what you're about to read was transcribed from a guy in a mental hospital. And then you get the guy in the mental hospital story. And his name is Rodney Severn. You get his first person description of this expedition to the ancient city of Yavambis on Mars. And at this point in human uh, evolution, humans have reached Mars. They are uh, have relationships with the Martians. The Martians are described as these like big skinny creatures. They're frequently described as being like spongy, you know. <laughs> um, that's the, the word that's repeated a few times. Um, yeah, it's the, the descriptions of the creatures is adequately disturbing. So there's... And, and on Mars, there's this city, um, Yavambis, that was inhabited by the, I believe it's the the Yorai or the uh, Yorhi, that they don't they don't know what happened. There's different kind of like rumors and myths about why these people disappeared. Yeah, boy, are there. Yeah. And like, hey, there was like a fungus that killed them all, like a fungal virus, and it d- dissolves their bones, and it starts with the teeth and fingernails. And I was like, oh, that sounds great. <laughs> and this this archaeologist and explorer, uh, Octave, or Octave, or maybe it's Octave, probably, um, is leads, leads this expedition to Yavambis to investigate and maybe figure out what happened to these people who have... Who disappeared forty thousand years yeah, it's ago? Like a, it's like a, a alien anthropology, which yeah. I love. Any book that does that, like Speaker for the Dead, is like all about xenoanthropology, and I love it. These people are ancient, you know, even by like Martian standards, they're forty thousand years old. So they go to this city, uh, they reach it. The Martians, the the contemporary Martians, refuse to go into the city with them. They camp out in the city. Uh, the first night there, and the the main character, the narrator, Rodney Severn, sees this 
like shadow kind of crawling on the ground towards Octave. And he doesn't know if he's dreaming or not, but nothing happens. He wakes up, uh, they continue exploring the city. It's described as this sort of like multi-terraced leveled city. I imagined it as as being um, like uh, sort of a Mesoamerican um, looking with sort of pyramidal structures and steps, um, you know, uh, temples and things like that. And they end up discovering these, this enormous stair, stairway uh, down into this darkness that leads beneath the city. And uh, they go down it and they discover these big caverns, the vaults of Yavambis. There's these uh, illustrations etched into the floor and the illustrations are of the people that, of Yavambis. And let me uh, describe them here uh, as, as they are written in the text. We found that the dark stone beneath our feet was marked off in multiform geometric patterns, traced with ochreous ore, amid which, as in, e as in Egyptian cartouches, hieroglyphics and highly formalized drawings were enclosed. We could make little from most of them, but the figures in many were doubtless de designed to represent the Yorhis themselves, like the Ahai. They were tall and angular, with great bellow-like chests, and they were depicted as possessing a supplementary third arm, which issued from the bosom, a characteristic which, in vestigial form, sometimes occurs among the Ahais. And just as a note, the Ahais are like the, the ordinary Martians that are still alive. Um... All of these Yorhis were represented as being nude, but in one of the cartouches, done in a far hastier style than the others, we perceived two figures who, whose high conical craniums were wrapped in what seemed to be a sort of turban, which they were about to remove or adjust. Now, that's kind of significant. It's that turban that's kind of the the spooky part of this. So anyways, they, they keep exploring. They end up finding this mummy mummified, uh, your he, and it has that turban around its head. And the guy octave goes up to it and touches it. And the bottom half of the mummy dissolves into dust, which was not the first time they describe it because they go into rooms where there's dust all over the floor. Right. And they mention maybe this is like, like completely desiccated bodies. Yeah, and in this one, this this mummy is actually chained to the wall. It's like secured, like a like a prisoner, but it has this black kind of leathery turban on its head. And after the guy Octave touches it, the 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 top half doesn't dissolve, but the turban kind of comes to life, and it wakes up, and it removes itself from the head of the the Yorhi. And it attacks Octave and wraps itself around his head. And it's a freaky moment of like, oh, get it off me, get it off me. But then uh, he ends up running off uh, into the vaults. The expedition, they try to find him and they, they end up splitting up and going down all these different tunnels. Never split up. Right. But then Severn goes back to where that mummy was and sees uh, Octave with the like leather turban on his head and he has a crowbar they describe it as like a slug that doesn't have eyes that is like a leathery bladder covered in like fuzzy 
fungus like material yeah and it has like little teeth on it and it also has what they describe as a a plexus like these nodes where it it connects to whatever it's attached to like it like i just imagine that as like a mouth that has teeth in it here's the paragraph it's pretty nasty uh it came with unexpected ease as if i had removed a limp rag but i wish to god that i had let it remain Beneath there was no longer a human cranium, for all had been eaten away, even to the eyebrows, and the half-devoured brain was laid bare as I lifted the cowl-like object. I dropped the unnameable thing from fingers that had grown suddenly nerveless, and it turned over as it fell, revealing on the nether side many rows of pinkish suckers arranged in circles about a pallid disc that was covered with nerve-like filaments, suggesting a sort of plexus. Pretty gross. Pretty terrifying. Yeah. Yeah. So so they find Octave, and he's kind of zombified at this point, and he has a crowbar, and he pries open this door um, behind where the, the mummy was in front of. And all the expedition members catch back up, and the door opens... And all of these other slugs of different sizes and compositions come flooding out of the door. It's also mentioned that he, the Severn notices at this point that the the mummy, when when the the turban uh, eel or turban slug came off its head, he he was able to infer that it it essentially eats your cranium and attaches to your brain. So these these slugs come out, <clears throat> everyone runs, all of his companions are killed, attacked, captured by this one thing. One of them, as as he's fleeing, one of the most invoking images is of someone just running off into the darkness. And there's also something he sees one of his companions who has has it wrapped around his head, wa- like walking very determinedly back towards the vaults that mm-hmm. that back into the the darkness yeah one of them succeeds at killing one of the slugs they cut it open and like uh red blood and black specks and white pus pour out oh of it. yeah it's a gross description it's like yeah it's it's pretty nasty but he runs one of them attaches to his head but he has a knife and he cu- cuts right it. as he yeah right as he's about to go out the entrance it falls onto him and his like vision is covered and yeah go on he he uses his knife to to slice at it and it comes off of his head and at that point not not before he describes the feeling of a hundred needles plunging into his head into his brain yeah. yeah and he ends up passing out after that so he he wakes up basically outside one of the entrances to these tunnels and the Martians that would not go in, go deep into the city with the expedition are kind of pulling him away. And he's sent to this hospital. They think he's crazy, but he describes at the end how, you know, as, as horrifying as that was, I have this, there's something even more horrifying about it, which is that I want to go back. I have this awful desire to return just like his zombified companion who he saw walking back into the darkness to the vaults yeah and it's clear that the slug 
has infected his brain with whatever this this horrific essence, this evil essence is, and he is has this desire to go back. He's been sort of converted, and that that must be what happened to the Yorhais is that they were all inf- infected. And actually, am I incorrect? Did they try and trap those slugs in that room, or were they just living there? It makes sense, but uh, one of the best descriptions is what, yes. when he's talking about the um, hall- not hallucinations, but like the mental anguish and mental changes that have happened to him he describes it as a black light inside of him and i thought that was a brilliant description because when you think of like a radiating darkness you can think of that in your like deep consciousness but you can't like picture it in real life darkness is the absence of light but for some reason in like a mental space it makes some kind of wild like sense yeah here it's like a perfect it's a perfectly like lovecraftian idea of like a contradiction that can only exist within your brain let let me read that paragraph here because so this is this is towards the end this is you know the ending of it it was then that the ultimate horror the beginning madness came upon me amid my crawling revulsion my nausea prompted desire to flee from that seething cavern mouth there rose an abhorrently conflicting impulse to return, to thread my backward way through all the catacombs as the others had done, to go down where never men save they, the inconceivably doomed and accursed, had ever gone, to seek beneath that damnable compulsion a nether world that human thought can never picture. There was a black light, a soundless calling, in the vaults of my brain." the implanted summons of the thing, like a permeating and sorcerous poison. It lured me to the subterranean door that was walled up by the dying people of Yaw Vombis, to immure those hellish and immortal leeches, those dark parasites that engraft their own abominable life on the half-eaten brains of the dead. It called me to the depths beyond, where dwell the noisome, necromantic ones." of whom the leeches, with all their powers of vampirism and diabolism, are but the merest minions. Very Lovecraftian. Yep. You know, you're referring to, you know, there's something much bigger and much worse out there. I just love this because there's a science fictional element to it, the whole Martian element, and uh, the the Xeno, what do you call it? Xenoanthropology. Xeno-anthrop- yeah, the Xeno archaeology anthropology. anthropology. Yeah, it was cool. Yeah, and and uh, you gave us a mummies story. I guess I did. I so didn't... we got we got Wolf Wolfman, Frankenstein, Dracula, mummies. We did we... And the Protestants, <laughs> the I whole know. the whole collection. We need creatures. <laughs> well, here here this is a stretch. Massachusetts used to be a, it's a very boggy area, so maybe the. The Black Lagoon people are the early pilgrims. No, <laughs> no, I'm not giving you that. I'm not giving you that. You'd be closer. You'd be closer with saying witches. Okay. Well, we. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, what did you think of that story? I told you I liked it. Yeah. I I didn't think I was going to going into it. Like when it started, I was like, okay, this is very like sci-fi, Lovecraft, whatever. And then the like story and the storytelling is very, very actually spooky and gross. Like it 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 creeped me out. 
So thank you for doing what very few things could for a whole year of reading. Yeah. It, 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 the only, so dad, how, let's talk about this story is dad lit. Okay. Let's, let's pull the list back out one last time tonight. Um, I don't think it's going to rate very high, but uh, let's see. Hyper competent male protagonist. No character with signature item. No. Uh, unless you want to count that mummy's turban. No. Um, henchman. Oh, no. Well, no. Nope. I mean, you could consider the the slugs henchmen for whatever is beyond, but that's that's not really that's a stretch. That's a stretch, just like the slugs can stretch. Elite fighting force, no. sure the slugs. Um technician class characters, sure, they invest archaeologists. Yeah, they're a team of yeah, sure. Yeah. Uh pencil neck bureaucrats, not really. President, not really. Cameos of famous historical figures, not really. Texans, we don't know. Uh, competency shift not really misogyny racism and other outmoded dates of thinking not really excessive smoking or drinking not really uh cold wear context no but i mean mars is a red menace gratuitous sex scenes i hope not um salvage operation not really they're not specifically salvaging anything they're just like investigating fails the bechtel test yes uh villain monologue no villain anti-monologue no breezy scientific technical exposition a little bit fiction or non-fictional framing device yes Yes. um nuclear warheads no multiple moles i mean they're, they're digging into people's heads um experimental technology yes ish i don't know implied Gun porn, no. Vehicle porn, no. Helicopter, submarines, planes, and ships, no. Uh, recap presented within plot. Ye- at the yes? at the end, I think he kind of summarizes what yeah. happened. in, in order, yeah. Say, yeah. Well, the whole the whole thing is also a recap. Like the plot is a recap. Sure. Like, hey, I'm in I'm in uh, this insane asylum, and this is why. Yeah. Um, Clancy has tech exposition, not really. Maps, illustrations, or diagrams. Uh, no chapters have location and or date timestamps. No, and author photo including those things. Absolutely not. Before no, no. Yeah. Is it a part of a series? No. I don't know. No. Okay. Um. Does the text include a teaser? No. No. Is there a large print version? No. No, but they will inject it into your brain and and impel you to go seek out the other books. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it'll be sort of like a e-reader t- towel. Instead of like reading yeah. the e-reader, you just place this like wet leathery towel on your head and you kind of it's, absorb the it's... book. Connor, Connor. It's the bookworm. Oh shit. <laughs> so I wouldn't rank it high as dad lit at all. No. I think if you were to hand this to a dad, they would call it nonsense. Yeah. <laughs> what did you give it out of a uh, hundred? I'd give it 20 20 black turbans there you go here Ooh. here dad take one <laughs> um i gave it 35 white sneakers and some bleach some bleach what's the bleach yeah, for to clean up all that gross uh, get rid of that fungus get rid of that blood get rid of that white stuff just clean everything just it made me feel gross tortured yeah what would you give it as a regular story like out of five three and a half i gave it Four out of five stars, but I would have given it five if it was written a little bit better. What, I did find 
like it, it's it's not written as well as like a Harlan Ellison story, and I would say it wasn't even written as well as Maypole. Um, I didn't find the writing itself special. It's just the content of the writing was good. I I enjoyed. I will say that it does have that certain. It has baroque, like stuffy, stuffy Lovecraftian vibe. I do think he. I like the way he does it better than Lovecraft because he better than Lovecraft. Uh, agreed. He does devote some baroque, uh, ornate language to gross things. Uh, which uh, I'm sure Lovecraft does it somewhere too, but I just didn't. It didn't turn me off as much as sometimes Lovecraft does. But yeah, I agree. It's not it's definitely not, not as much as it. Yeah, definitely not as bad as Lovecraft, but it does have that same vibe. So it like 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 I said at first, it it turned me off until like I got into the story. Yeah, a couple of things. Did you ever listen to that audiobook that I sent you on the CD that was called Walking to Aldebaran? No, I haven't yet. I will. I have it, but I It's very similar to this in a different way, but it's it's like the same style of content in, in, including like an astronaut investigating in ancient ruins. It's inspired by Lovecraft and some actual like Lovecraft mythos, but it's by a modern author named um Adrian Tchaikovsky. He also wrote that Spiders book that you need to read. Yeah, Anyways, I have that too. Yeah. Um, if you want a good spook, this this Halloween Connor, listen to that audiobook. Also, people at home, Walking to Aldebaran. Whether you read it or listen to it, I don't care. But it's a good spooky, like astronaut lost in a ruins story. Okay. Um, another thing, and while we're talking about Lovecraft, a podcast recommendation. I found it this year but it's been out for several years uh, but they i guess they just put out new content for it um, it's a bbc production called lovecraft investigations and it's wonderfully made it's an like an audio drama made under the guise of it being like the framing devices that it's a podcast called the mystery machine and it's like these two people investigating a mystery the first episode is like 10 episodes long and it's um the lovecraft story the case of charles dexter ward or something like that really good it they modernize the story and add a lot of elements to it that i think are really really good and work really well in both the modern setting and the like the medium lots of like interviews with other people like the cast is really big and it does spooky pretty well um, it definitely does Lovecraft in a non-stuffy way. And they've also done uh, several other Lovecraft stories, including Shadow Over Innsmouth, which I'm excited to listen to. Um, highly recommend it. I, I listened to it on a job like yesterday and cleared all 10 episodes within the day and like enjoyed every minute of it. Lovecraft Investigates. Uh, Lovecraft Investigations. Invest- okay, cool. That sounds yeah. neat. I'll have to give it a whirl. Yeah, check it out. It's on Spotify. Like I said, the BBC made it with a huge cast. It's like a pretty decent production. It's pretty good. All right, before we before we call it a night, are you reading anything else spooky for this Halloween, or are you reading anything else at all right now? Frankenstein, like I mentioned. Oh, yeah, that's right. Good, cool. Yeah, other than that, not really. How about you? I am actually reading something that's kind of dadlit adjacent. So... I'm reading this novel called I Ripper, and it is a historical horror thriller, whatever, about Jack the Ripper. And the Ooh. the author is Stephen Hunter, 
who is a dad lit author I want to talk about. He writes these books called the the Bobbly Swagger series. Um, if you're familiar with the, the movie Shooter with Mark Wahlberg, it's about this guy who's a, um, I think in the book he's like a Vietnam vet who was like a sniper. And in, in these books, he's he's an expert marksman. And he kind of gets pulled into various government conspiracy things and has to investigate very dad litty material. That's, that's uh, Stephen Hunter's uh, kind of forte is uh criminal and military type you know thrillers um and i definitely want to do a book by him but this one is about jack the ripper and it's a it has sections like that are like jack the ripper's diary but the the other character the main character is this journalist who starts writing about jack the ripper in london and he he becomes becomes kind of famous himself because he has such good coverage and he's a really good writer uh, and he 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 sensationalizes the story. It's a pretty darn good story. I mean, I've I've read a few different Jack the Ripper related stories. I read a book by Robert Block, who's the author of Psycho. I think that one's called Night of the Ripper, which was kind of interesting. I think that if I remember it correctly, I think the Elephant Man was a character in it. There's a uh, Jack the Ripper book by Clive Costler. Oh, really? Yeah, one of the Isaac Bell series involves Jack the Ripper. That's cool. I'd love to read that. It's pretty good. I think that one's <laughs> called The Cutthroat. Okay. I mean, for my money though, Alan Moore's From Hell. If you if you've seen the movie, I like the movie. I think it's a good uh occult detective uh movie. I've heard it very highly praised in terms of his writing. But his that the graphic novel is I mean, it's it's mind-blowing. It's it is it's, it's it's so much better than the movie. And um, if you read it, read all the notes because most of the editions, I think all of them have these authors like research notes in the back where he talks about this actually happened. And this newspaper article talks about X, Y, and Z because those are really fascinating as well. But it's such hmm. a crazy, weird, occult, psychedelic story of jack the ripper it's it's i mean the investigation by the detective is just is kind of a minor part of it compared to all the other stuff going on hmm. okay i mean i've never i mean i generally enjoy alan moore's stuff regardless of the, the content issues that happen with his stuff oh yeah um but uh, I have not read that one, so I'll have to give it a shot sometime. Yeah, but other than that, you know, I'll try and read some short stories, and I'm, I've got a um, <clears throat> pretty uh, pretty full Halloween planned. I, you know, <clears throat> I love horror movies. Sorry, I'm still getting over some like some travel sickness. I got sick over in Europe. I last time I went to Europe like 12 years ago. And I got sick there too. It's just travel, you know. You get tired and just you're not used to the germs. It's different different germs man yeah but um oh okay you're talking about your halloween plans so they're showing so i live in the same town as george r, r. martin and he owns this movie theater i've talked about this before the, the jean the cocktail theater we went there they're showing scream on halloween Ooh. night so i'm gonna go see scream but before scream this other movie theater the cca the center for contemporary arts i used to work there it's more of like an independent art house type theater uh is showing a movie called Paganini Horror, and it's a horror musical. It's an Italian horror film. 
The director is mm. Luigi Cozzi, which is interesting because I met Luigi Cozzi in Rome a week and a half ago. Oh, yeah, I went. So he, Dar, you may be familiar with the director Dario Argento, who directed yes. Suspiria. He's a celebrated Italian horror uh, director, and he's often associated with the Giallo films. Um, with Jallo films and he uh has a small museum and shop that he opened and luigi cozzi i think is like well, dario argento died a few years ago so i think he's like the owner and operator so he'll, he's often at the store so i went and he was there and i talked to him a little bit um and i went to the argento museum uh and now i'm gonna see one of his movies in a movie theater so i got a nice full cool. yeah horror movie I'm going to go to one movie and then we go go to another movie theater to see another one. Yeah, sort of a double feature, but yeah. you have to travel between it. Yeah, I also just picked up a DVD of uh all the Hellraiser movies after Hellraiser 2. Hellraiser 1 and 2 are pretty good. The other ones are are kind of like franchise more like schlocky yeah. horror franchisey franchisey type yeah, stuff. Yeah, we get it. We we've we've all seen those kind of sequels. Yeah, and some of them are good though. The third one's good. I'm 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 interested more for I'll say like research purposes, but there's some later ones that are about or like a computer game um, that that the lament configuration the the puzzle box it's a, in the form of a computer game. Uh, I just think it's kind of interesting the way that in the 90s and into the 2000s that you know computer technology and the internet. You can yeah, use, they wanted to integrate that into the the. the the content somehow and make it yeah. about computers and in hey yeah. this is the new cool thing guys let's make the horror about computers right and 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 uh halloween resurrection does that as well there's like several episodes of x files that did that that were really bad yo yeah like like the <laughs> matrixy type stuff like they get virtual yeah. reality and but it's kind, yeah. it's kind of funny how ham-handed they are about those things um, or yeah, like, same thing with like Stargate. Stargate has a pretty bad one where they have to like go into a fantasy game. It's it's funny when when uh, there's there's also <laughs> there's an old um, murder she wrote episode where she goes into a oh like a VR game and has the VR headset and gloves on and has to like go into a computer game. I have to see that. Well, you, there's the, the, you have to find it if, if you if you don't find the episode, look up the like gif of it. It's really funny. Well, it's funny. Last night I've been so tired. I got off of work yesterday, and I took a nap on the couch and I slept like till midnight. But uh, my partner was watching some Star Trek episodes, and she put on the Big Goodbye. I think it's called, which is the, the one where they're like noir detectives on the hollow deck. Yeah, and she's like, I want that one's fun. She's like, I wanted you to watch this. I put it on, but you fell asleep. So there's two. If I remember correctly, there's two episodes that um re that revolve around that um holodeck program and and uh, Picard's character uh, Dixon Hill. Yes, yes, yes. Because I saw because yeah. it was on, and I, I saw clips of it, and he has like a business card, and data yeah, it's da data great. is there as well. Yeah, yeah. Um. Those are good episodes. There's also an episode similar to that in Deep Space Nine where it's a, a casino heist. Have you ever, I may have talked about this before, but the movie Bob Le Flambeur, the French movie? No. Bob the Thief. Uh, it is directed by Jean-Pierre Melville, and it's considered like a French New Wave film. It's a crime movie 
uh, that is the influence for Ocean's Eleven, and it is about this very intelligent criminal. Send send that to me because I'm not going to remember that. But send send that to me in chat. I may I may uh, screen it in our little film in our little film club. Yeah, do that. Yeah, um, yeah. If you like heists and heist revenge, there's two films that are Polish films called um, Va Bank V A Bank and. The first movie is a really good heist movie, and then the second movie is um like a revenge that the the guy gets on the people that did the heist. Oh, and and it's 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 in the same kind of vein as like the oceans movies, but like from a different um culture and time period. They they I think they were made in like the seventies or eighties. Okay, um, I'll check. That sounds cool. For, they're, they're both really good movies. I highly recommend them if you can find them somewhere to watch. That's cool. Sorry, excuse me. <laughs> oh, you're sleepy. It's time to time to wrap up the podcast. I've been. I'm still getting over, over some jet lag, to be honest with you. Yeah, I mean, that's... <sighs> well, happy Halloween to all the listeners out there. Yeah, everybody have a good Halloween. Everyone have fun within reason. Let us know what you all are reading. Let us know what's a good spooky book. Scare me. I want to be scared. Jump jump out at me and go boo. Thank you for listening to our spooky special. Our special Halloween version of our theme is still done by Vitazen. He was so kind to make a spooky version of it for us. Uh, you can find it and all of his music at vitazin.card.co. That's card with two R's. Uh, and you can also find him on Spotify. His music is fantastic. Please go check him out. You can find us online at dadlitpodcast at gmail.com. Or if you want to go to Instagram, you can find us at dadlitpodcast. We have a lot of interesting pictures and things that we put up to compliment the episodes that we post check us out and check out all of the other cool things we mentioned please hit us up about anything that you want us to check out next episode is going to be a short scatter shot about um, media concerning wanted men ought to be pretty fun give it a listen and yeah thank you and dad you later dad you later <laughs> <laughs>